Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. I got a tweet the other day from somebody named Frank Crawford. And Frank, thank you for tweeting me. He said, uh, we need some more deep-end podcasts soon. So, Frank, we got you covered this week. Roshi Joan Halifax is on the show. She's a Zen priest and also an anthropologist, and she's done a lot of work uh, around uh, death and dying, which, as we've covered before on this show, is not and does not need to be as morbid as sometimes uh, we assume. Okay, much more from uh, from Joan coming up, but uh, first a little piece of business and then your phone calls. Uh, so the business is uh, there's a little event coming up in New York City that I'm doing at the Museum of Modern Art, MoMA. Um, it's on June 6th. Uh, they have this thing there um, called Quiet Mornings, where it's, they open up the museum at 7.30 in the morning, and it goes until about 9 in the morning, and you can look at the art, and then they do a guided meditation, and I'm going to do one of those guided meditations. And uh, so that's a June 6th, so Wednesday morning. You can get tickets at MoMA.org. All right, let's do some phone calls. Uh, as usual, my caveat, I'm not a meditation teacher, not a mental health expert. I've not heard these voicemails in advance, so I just answer them to the best of my ability, uh, which is, as uh, I think you all know, somewhat limited. Uh, having said that, let's do it. Here's call number one. Hi, Dan. This is Donna in Raleigh, North Carolina. I'm curious as to how somebody can build a stronger stillness Meditation, so where they're actually sitting very, very still, not moving, and getting past the point where all you're thinking about is how I can't move right now. I'm trying to teach this to my students at the university, and they've asked me these questions about stillness meditation, so I'm curious about it. Thanks. Uh, so I don't – I, <laughs> I said my abilities were limited uh, uh, and this may be a great example of, of how they're limited because I don't know much about anything called stillness meditation specifically, but I, I do know about the issue of stillness in meditation because that comes up a lot and especially for fidgety people uh, such as myself. Um, so here's, here's what I'll say about that. So p- people often ask, can I move? Um, and so the the headline answer, the, the simple, easy answer is yes, you can move, especially if you think you're going to get hurt. Um, you know, no, there, you will not get struck by lightning if you move while meditating, um, especially, again, if you think you're about to hurt yourself, in which case you absolutely should move. There is, however, a real benefit to staying still. The body will get uncomfortable. There's a reason why we're shifting in our chair all day long, why we roll around in our beds, because the body staying in any one position gets uncomfortable. And what we're doing in meditation is learning how to be equanimous, okay with the discomfort, to not get so carried away by all the stories of, oh my God, this is going to get worse, this is never going to end, I'm going to die, et cetera, et cetera. So, so the the move in meditation um, uh, in in as I've been taught it, is to uh, get curious about the discomfort. Get curious about the kind of thinking that the discomfort is provoking and to view it 
mindfully to not get so caught up in it. And that ultimately is what we're training. And yes, it may be painful, but we're developing the ability over time to to be able to handle stuff that we often just run from. And when you examine it, when you get curious about what is this sensation of pain in my knee right now, for example, you'll see that it's shifting and changing all the time. Um, and that it may not be as bad as you thought if you're just you know, fully invested in all of the things that your ego is telling you about how uh, this is so horrible, you better move, this whole meditation thing is junk, blah, blah, blah. So there's, there's a lot to be learned through sitting through pain and discomfort. But again, the thing to know is uh, that if you if you really are about to get hurt, uh, you should move. It's not a big deal. Uh, I think that answers your question. I hope it answers your question. Uh, if not, you get your money back. Uh, here's call number two. Hey, Dan, this is David in Denver, Colorado. Love your work around meditation and 10% happier. I've been a participant with you on this journey for the last almost two years. And my question has to do with, and really would like your perspective, as somebody who started meditation, you know, ostensibly to deal with anxiety and panic attacks and stress. But, you know, nine years into it, you're really starting to, and probably um, for a long time, starting to get into the deep end of the pool. And my path is somewhat similar. I started this, you know, merely to deal with stress management, anxiety, and what I have found is that I am really taken to this practice and starting to get very um, deep into it, both in terms of time, you know, almost two hours a day, sometimes longer, and starting to explore, you know, deeper practices. But my challenge is, is how to deal with that and lead a normal, what they call householder life, like, um, like you and, and other people. So I'm wondering how you handle that and how you balance getting into the deep end of the pool and also, you know, kind of remaining in society and, and interacting on a, a more um, less transcendent um, level with other people. This is good stuff. I have a lot to say on this. Hopefully I'll remember to say it all and hopefully I'll say it correctly. But yeah, I mean, look, for some people, you start meditating and uh, over time it goes in directions you weren't expecting. You know, I, I think a lot of people start trying to do one, two, three, four or five minutes a day, a couple times a week. And by the way, to be clear, if that is what you do for the rest of your meditation career, for the rest of your life, that's great. I think you're getting a lot of benefits out of that. But some people, and I'll put myself in this category, start to get really interested in uh, um, getting out of the shallow end of the pool and toward the deep end of the pool. Um, and by the way, when I say shallow, I don't mean that in the pejorative. I just mean that, that uh you know, for some folks just want to, you know, do a little bit of meditation to boost their ability to focus and boost their mindfulness so they're not so yanked around by their emotions. That is beautiful. And, and again, there is no, no disrespect or disdain in anything I'm saying about the movement toward the deep end of the pool. It's just some people are interested in it. And if you're not, that's no big deal. But so it sounds like you and I both are. Uh, and yeah, it does come with a bunch of challenges. Um you know how do you uh, how do you not let the practice you know eat up your your rather your conventional life? So for me, you know, I th I think we now get into some individual decisions. So for me, 
I definitely want to stay in, uh, you used a sort of Buddhist term of art here, in my householder life, in that I have a a wife who's not a big meditator. She does a little bit of it. I have a three-year-old who does zero meditation and a lot of pooping in his pants uh, and cats. And uh, uh, I have a busy life at ABC News. I have a startup company. Uh, a podcast and blah blah blah, and I want I like being engaged in the world, um, and I find uh, I don't actually find the deeper engagement with the practice to be a problem in my deep engagement with the world. In fact, quite the opposite is true. Since in the last three years, since I started do, doing two hours a day of meditation, which again, regular listeners will know, I don't do all in one dose. I just do it and whatever. Uh, dose I can, whatever length I can, as many times as I want, th- wherever I want throughout the course of the day. I found that that just upping the the amount of meditation has helped me uh, be more effective in my in in all of my various endeavors. So that I'm less of a jerk to myself and others. Uh, I'm able to focus and be more productive on all the various projects that I'm working on. Um, and I, I find that interweaving quite uh, quite uh, beautiful, but. I, I can see where it would be challenging for somebody, A, to find the time to to do all the meditation uh, you want to do, and B, to, to and then maybe I'm, I think I'm kind of hearing this and what you're saying, to feel a little torn between, um, you know, your conventional householder life and your burgeoning interest in the practice. And so I don't know much about the details of your life, but I would say, you know, uh, there are some people who decide, look, I'm going to, you know, stop leading so much of the conventional life and maybe really take time off and do months, if not years of retreat. And that's an incredible thing to do, not only for you, but for the world, because many, if not most of the people who do that, then come back and teach others how to meditate. And that is an incredibly valuable service to provide. You know, as somebody who's now part of the meditation industry, one of the biggest problems we have in the industry is we don't have, there's a dearth of qualified teachers. The qualifications needed to be a real serious meditation teacher uh, are extensive. And I've talked about this on the show before, so I I won't go off in too much of a jag about this. But I think you could be doing a great service to yourself and others if you decided, hey, look, you know, uh, if I can, if if you can responsibly, responsibly, consciously uncouple from, uh, to, to quote Gwyneth Paltrow, from uh, from your conventional life, if that's what you want to do and it's not hurting anybody, um, then then you know why not poke around. Um, but but if you do want to stay in your regular life, then I think you're dealing with what I'm dealing with, which is a balance between this incredible interest and value uh, from the practice um, and how to stay in in the the quote unquote real world uh, successfully. Um, and that's just a really interesting thing to play with. And and interestingly, the practice will help you with that balance. Final thing you said, to the extent that I can remember everything you said, is because all of it was so interesting, um, is that uh, you know it, you were wondering about how, now that you're practicing so much, how to interact with 
um, using this term, civilians, people who aren't really that into meditation and not being weird. Well, I think that's another thing that your practice can help you with. And, you know, you, you, you can hopefully be attuned to the folks you're talking to and see when you're bumming them out or weirding them out or losing their interest. If you're going on and on about your meditation practice, or if you're getting too woo woo or syrupy or something like that. And I think that's just a thing to watch um, and, and to be OK making mistakes. Um, because you will make mistakes, and this is just a learning process. So great question. Good on you for getting so interested in the practice. Um, it's nice to know that I, there are Confederates out there. Um, okay, J- just one last note on the on the voicemails. Um, if uh, we, we love these voicemails. They started this as an experiment that um, uh, Josh and Lauren, who are the producers of the show, dreamed up, and I, I kind of resisted it for a long time, but now we, we do it every week. So if you want to call in, uh, and leave a voicemail. Uh, the number is 646-883-8326. 646-883-8326. We'll probably use it if it isn't too weird. And if it is really weird, we may use it anyway. Okay, our guest, Roshi Joan Halifax, PhD. She is an incredibly interesting person. She's a Zen priest. Uh, she's a Buddhist teacher. She's an anthropologist. Uh, she's also a pioneer in the field of end-of-life care, which is of uh, real interest to me as somebody who spends uh, time volunteering in a hospice every week and uh, who I, I think we'll get to this. Uh, I worry uh, about, you know, the way we die in this culture. And, and uh, so she is just an incredibly interesting person who's had a fascinating life. Uh, so rather than me yammer on about it, um, uh, let's let's hear it from from Joan herself. Here she is. Roshi Joan Halifax, Ph.D. From ABC. This is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. So I'll ask you the question I always ask everybody, which is, how did you start meditating? I began out of desperation. I I think you did too. Yes. And um, it was in the 1960s during the civil rights and the anti-war movement. And a couple of things came up for me. One was um, uh, my mind was seriously upregulated. And uh, so was my body. You know, we were in a very uh, resistant, revolutionary mood uh, in the 1960s. Where, where were you? I actually was here in New York. And, and at Columbia University? I was at Columbia. I was working in a big project in the Bureau of Applied Social Research for a remarkable person named Alan Lomax. And we were looking at patterns of culture, cross-culturally. And um, he was... Uh, uh, left of left himself. <laughs> I, I, my parents, I used to refer to them, I sometimes refer to them as left of Trotsky. More or less in that direction. <laughs> and of course, um, one of the really uh, powerful things was to be in New York at that time. Although I was raised in the South and schooled in the South, I came here in a way to get away from the... Where in the South? Um, well, I went to school in New Orleans. Love and, New Orleans. Oh, New Ooh. Orleans is great. So great. It was great. But it was a very complicated atmosphere. Especially uh, at that in, time. In, at that time. Yeah. And I was very close uh, with um, a man called Hodding Carter, who was uh, um, at that point, um, he had, uh, um, had lost his eyesight, but he needed uh, – feet and hands, so to speak, out there doing civil rights work on his behalf. And so he and I, and uh, I was very close with his wife, Betty Werleiner, and it was just an incredible time where um, 
uh, I was able to learn a lot about uh, the perspective of justice that I carry today. And uh, Hodden Carter was a major influence in my life. And then right after that, when I came to New York, um, I connected with a physicist named David David Finkelstein, and I was uh, in the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. And then I had the chance to meet Fannie Lou, Fannie Lou Hamer, and she just completely uh, lit my fire because I could see how faith and justice work together. I've never heard of Fannie Lou Hamer. Well, she ran for president, by the way. Well, I, and, was, uh, I wasn't she alive. Was, she was a sharecropper from Mississippi who became one of the major voices for SNCC. And she was here in New York? No, she came. Actually, she worked all over the South, and she was really pushing for vote, voter registration. But uh, I can't believe you haven't heard of her. Well, well uh, now you have to look her up. It's just the beginning of my ignorance. Well, it's going to get worse from here, I promise. I'm not sure about that. <laughs> but anyway, she was a, a major voice during the civil rights movement. And she was kind of Two voices. Oh, well, really three. She was the voice of justice. She was the voice of feminism. And um, she also um, – she she could sing from the soles of her feet. So and, like like all of my best guests, you say a few things and now I have a million questions. So uh, I don't even know where to start. What – for you, whence this thirst to be engaged in social justice – why was that driving you so forcefully? You know, Dan, um, I think all of us in that era who were of my ilk, and there were, I think, millions of my ilk, had been raised in a kind of dead time. That time was the 50s. Eisenhower. I mean, yeah. well, Eisenhower was not entirely a bad person. He had quite a bit of wisdom. No, uh, but that era but was that known era, as— that yeah, era, yeah. yeah. It was um, it was a sort of a dead time. It was a bubble of privilege if you were a white person. Mm -hmm. And I was raised in the South. But also, um, when I was a child, I lost my eyesight. And um, I was uh, in bed, really sick, at the age of four till the age of six. And my parents uh, brought a woman into our household whose mother had been a slave or grandmother had been a slave. And this woman was really extraordinary. She was the epitome of loving kindness. Plus, she had a disposition to die for. And so um, I was, uh, you could say, loved into a view of justice. And um, that justice was combined with love. And when Martin Luther King brought those two parameters together a decade later, um, it truly made sense to me. And I couldn't understand because I was born into a, uh, or raised in a community that was restricted. So what was a restricted community? You and I can't even imagine that at this point in our life. But that uh, community did not allow um, uh, Afro-Americans nor Jews to live in that neighborhood. And wow. so... Uh, which state was this in? This was in Florida, southern Florida. So the you know that was we, legal. That was that. What do you mean? That was the law, indeed. I know. So the 
the bubble that and the moral apathy that pervaded um, white communities in that time, of course, was something that also uh, was part of my history, but also uh, this extraordinary person entered into that bubble um, by virtue of my sickness and my father picking him, her up every day and bringing her into Coral Gables, Florida, where my mother and father lived. And as a result of that, um, I got ignited by some sort of fire of, in a way, it was curiosity or inquiry or how could this be? Um, these communities of discrimination that seem to protect people from the heart. So you you wind up after New Orleans in New York City. You use the word upregulated uh, to describe your mental state. What do you what do you mean by that? And what were you doing that upregulated you? Well, you know, we were protesting everything. I mean, I say everything related to um, discrimination. So And the war, I would and, imagine. And the war. But first it was the civil rights movement, and then it was the war. And then um, in the mid-60s, Dan, um, I joined a huge demonstration where we were moving down Fifth Avenue, and there was one Buddhist um, walking at a snail's pace. And his name was Thich Nhat Hanh. <laughs> okay, can I explain to people who Th- Thich Nhat Hanh is? Please do. Uh, at this point in history, actually, a, a key figure, because he's a Vietnamese... Uh, Young person. At this point... Monk. Yes, again, at, 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 the, at the point in the chronology in which you're, you have uh, taken us, a young Vietnamese monk who went on to take uh, uh, play a very important role in the, in, in the peace process... Um, and also now is still alive and has a large following and um, re- has written some really incredible books. And if you're looking, listener, for his books, the spelling is not obvious, T-H-I-C-H-N-H-A-T-H-A-N, three different words. Did H-A- I get that? H-A-N-H. Okay, I missed an H. There's a lot of H's in there. There are. <laughs> and uh, and he's, 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 he's incredible. Yeah. So did you meet him? Well, I met him, but in a very casual way. But actually, um, I met him, which is to say uh, I was a social activist, but also I was suffering. I was suffering because I was in enormous reaction against our government and against uh, violence. But in a way, having a war with violence causes one suffering. Mm-hmm. And so um, the thing that really stirred me, Dan, was here was somebody who brought a contemplative practice in relation to social action and social responsibility and dealing with issues, um, which he did, related to structural violence. So it, it just completely, again, you know, another phase shift in my life um, where I saw um, you could be a revolutionary that walked the path of peace. So did you put on the, the robes the next day, or how did it go? You know, I had been practicing as a book Buddhist, if you will, inspired by Alan Watts and also a little bit by Krishnamurti and, and some by D.T. Suzuki. But... um. That kind of Buddhism was, uh, and actually Krishnamurti uh, has a book called The Only Revolution. That's the title of the book. 
But the follow line is the revolution within. And so, you know, I thought, hmm, that is a very interesting perspective for someone who's basically a revolutionary myself, but um, because it implied a transformation process had to happen internally so that I could actually do the work around social justice. But it wasn't as though Krishnamurti was a social revolutionary. And I felt some sense of deep responsibility in terms of engaging at the social level and the political level in terms of how do we transform the fabric of our society. And so Thich Nhat Hanh exemplified exactly the processes and qualities which I felt were essential in terms of social and environmental responsibility. So how did he operate? What was he doing that was so intriguing in terms of using having a contemplative practice, Buddhism in this case, and also engaging in the world in a meaningful way? Well, I don't really know what he was doing at that point. It wasn't until 20 years later I became his student. It was more uh, uh, the archetype or more uh, bringing together social action and contemplation. And I thought, if this guy does it, it can be done. And in a way, Martin Luther King also did it. He was a person of profound faith and prayer. Just a different tradition. And just a different tradition. And in fact, uh, King nominated Thich Nhat Hanh for the Nobel Peace Prize. But, you know, particularly Thich Nhat Hanh, I, I wanted to understand what Buddhism was. I was born and raised into a Protestant family, went to uh, an Episcopal school, had this kind of flavor of faith in my psyche. Fannie Lou Hamer also was a person of great faith um, whom I met in the 1960s. And I wanted to understand the role of religion, spirituality in terms of social responsibility but also, Dan, I saw something in uh, encountering Thich Nhat Hanh about his mind um, that really moved me, and I wanted to grow a mind and heart like that. What did you see? I saw peace. I saw pain. I saw wisdom. I saw compassion. But I saw peace. And it was that piece that I felt was essential to actualize if I were going to be engaged as a social activist. How A lot of people are going to wonder, how do you have pain in your mind and compassion? How, does, how do those coexist? Compassion, of course, being the desire to alleviate others' pain and suffering. How do you, have that, how do you hold that at the same time with peace? I don't think if you're human, you can avoid pain and suffering. I think the Buddha saw that clearly by articulating the first noble truth in the first teaching that he gave. Not that life is suffering, but there is suffering. And in fact, um, in my new book, Standing at the Edge, um, one of the uh, uh, areas that I explore in the book is how important it is to stand in a landscape that allows you to see both the truth of suffering and also freedom from suffering at the same time. And if you look at the great um, uh, revolutionaries and people we admire today, like Malala or Mandela 
or uh, Jane Goodall, or um, Thich Nhat Hanh, or His Holiness the Dalai Lama. These are, are people who have encountered uh, uh, deep suffering in their lives. They were exiled from their countries, they were shot at, they were imprisoned. And as a result, in a certain way of uh, having been wounded by the world, they came to embrace the whole world. And out of that, um, they actualized wisdom and compassion. And so I think that one of the really important things, it's like turning into the skid. It's not turning away from suffering through avoidance or denial or dumb, uh, 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 numbing or addiction. It's actually to understand what suffering is about. And I feel Thich Nhat Hanh went into that uh, completely with his whole life. Let me press you on that a little bit because – I mean, I, I agree with what you're saying, um, but I'm not sure I fully understand it, even though I, I'm uh, directionally trying to, you know, live that way. Turning into the skid, sort of fully experiencing your pain and suffering, how, what is the mechanism by which that can lead to peace of mind? So I feel that um, when we push our suffering away, it's not that we have to seek it. Uh, don't worry, you'll be given it in one form or another, even if it's the suffering of anger or the suffering of ignorance. But um, what uh, turning toward the suffering that one goes through instead of pushing it away or denying it, what it does for us is that it opens up our capacity for compassion. It becomes a kind of ground where we uh, are able to um, attend to the truth of suffering in all of the world. So if you can fully experience your own suffering and uh, without pushing it away and without indulging it, um, without feeding it through, you know, whatever neurotic obsessions happen to be flitting through your mind at any given moment, but just really experiencing it mindfully, um, then you have a more of a sense that everybody else experiences this too, and you might be of a mind to... Be useful. Well, what happened to you? In, in, when? A lot of things have happened. Well, I know a lot of things have happened, but you made a radical shift, you know, out of uh, a disintegrated state toward what and why? Uh, I would say upregulation is a nice word. I actually I like the word you use that for me, I was super self-centered and ambitious and uh, moving very fast uh, with a lot of distraction. And when, I, when it was pointed out to me that we have a voice in our heads that's yammering all the time and that, we're, and that it's mostly negative and, self, and repetitive and self-referential, primarily the third, really, that it's all, you're all just stuck in this own movie of your own making that is all about you, and I realized, oh, yeah, that describes my life. And uh, meditation seemed like a useful tech, inner technology for chipping away at that, for transcending it occasionally. And But more importantly, just seeing it, seeing that it's happening so that it doesn't own you. And just doing that mental exercise over and over and over again where you just see the chaos, the inner zoo – 
allows you to disembed from it. And so for me, that has been the process. Well, I, no different for me. Um, maybe my project has been a little bit longer than yours <laughs> because I've been more stubborn and resistant or I have to, you know, keep returning to it. Again and again. Although I, I get pangs of guilt when I'm confronted with somebody like you because even though I'm a, you know, a full-time meditator now and a meditational evangelist, et cetera, et cetera, I wouldn't say if I, if I examine my own motivations carefully, and I try to do that when I have the guts to do it, I don't know that I'm, I wouldn't call myself as somebody who is uh, – I wouldn't describe myself as somebody who is – principally motivated by social justice. You know, I think there's a lot of stuff in my in my uh, range of motivation that is selfish, you know, feathering the nest for me and my wife and our child, um, promoting my work, et cetera, et cetera. Yes, I do have some high-minded uh, goals, especially sort of uh, making this practice, this simple secular practice, available to a wider swath of people, which is, which I believe will alleviate suffering, mitigate suffering, but it coexists with a lot of selfish stuff too. If I'm being honest, so I do. Uh, you know, I think that's a difference I see between the two of us. Although, of course, I don't, I can't read your mind. I think we're all a little selfish, uh, and. Um, I think I think what's really extraordinary is that your message, which is a secular message, is reaching deep into our society and is turning uh, many people toward the so-called dharma, toward the value of mental training, the value of cultivating loving kindness, you know, uh, you've interviewed Sharon Salzberg many times and she's a friend. She loves you. Yes. And um, so when I met her in the early 1970s, IMS was just starting. And so Joseph Goldstein and uh, Jack and Sharon were at the uh, at IMS, which was much, much smaller than needless to say. The Insight Meditation Society in Barrie, Massachusetts, which they started, yes. And um, so, I, so I went to, to meet them and visit with them. And I was a Zen person by this time. And uh, Sharon asked me about my practice. I said, oh, just sitting in this kind of warrior-like practice, which actually suits me rather well in terms of my disposition. Um, And I said to her, well, what's your practice? And she said, oh, I practice loving kindness. And I'm like, oh, I wonder if I would slip into a diabetic coma doing that kind of practice. Um, Tell me more about that practice, I said. And uh, she began to describe the Brahma Viharas, the boundless abodes of loving kindness, practicing that and compassion and sympathetic joy and equanimity. And I'm, I'm listening going, oi. I'm not sure this is anything I would ever do. It just sounds too sweet to me. She said, hey, just do it. It'll change your life. And I just loved her. She's such an amazing person. She's so totally who she is. (laughs) And I decided to try it on. And it's been over 40 years since 
I started this practice, bringing it into my Zen practice, and I think I'm a better person for it. So, but but it's not strictly orthodox, right? So, if you're a Zen practitioner, this loving kindness meditation, which is really comes from a different tradition, if I understand correctly, so you'll correct me when I step outside of uh, accuracy here. It's a bit more of something that that's done in the sort of Theravada tradition, which is the older school Buddhism. So was that considered um, uh, in any way uh, um, a transgression for you to bring this into a Zen context? First, I did it just for myself, um, mostly because I was conditioned by uh, the era in which I was uh, found myself as a young adult um, into a lot of uh, sort of revolutionary, aversive states of mind. Mm. And, um, but I also had this other thread moving through my life, which came from the woman who was so kind to me as a child. She exemplified the Brahma Viharas. Can you define the Brahma Viharas for folks? Yeah, so there are four. This is known as the boundless abodes. These are states of mind that are actually natural to us but get covered up by virtue of our history, our genetics, our conditioning, our childhood, our culture, and so forth. And I, I, uh, I begin with, uh, and, or they begin with loving kindness. And, um, you know, how we can ask ourselves, how can we be supported by this uh, heart and mind that is characterized by deep kindness? by concern about others, by gentleness. And it's not just interpersonally, but it's also how can we develop a mind and heart that is loving and kind. And just for the listeners who may want to know what the others are, I'll just I'll just fill it in quickly and you'll correct me again because I'm sitting here talking with an eminent teacher and I'm pretending I know what I'm talking about. Anyway, they are uh, loving kindness, as you said, which is basically you could you could translate it as friendliness. Uh, compassion, which is um, the desire to or the movement to alleviate others' suffering. Uh, mudita, which is one of my favorite words and very hard to do in a pre- professional context. It's the opposite of schadenfreude. It's the desire. It is the uh, taking pleasure in other people's success or uh, good fortune. And uh, finally, uh, equanimity, um, uh, which is needed if you're going to apply uh, the these compassionate states in a world in which uh, which is characterized by entropy impermanence and sometimes mm. cruelty uh, you know another take on equanimity that i've always appreciated is um loving all beings equally huh beautiful hard to do when you have a kid in other words, like, uh, I have a child. I don't know that I can love everybody who walks by me on the street. Right. Well, it, it's kind of um, – it's a standard that's kind of interesting because when you find that you're, you're in touch with your biases – and like I worked in the penitentiary of New Mexico, which is one of the worst penitentiaries in this country. Maybe not in the world, but in this country – and um, I would notice when I cared a little bit more for prisoner A as distinct from prisoner B. And um, it would be like a kind of pull. I would feel like, oh, I'm favoring one over another. Or if I'm with a student and I realize, oh, 
I'm favoring this student over another student. Or I'm sitting with a group of teachers and favoring one over another. Or if I'm sitting in the Rohingya refugee camp in Kathmandu and I favor a woman, a Rohingya woman, who's in a burqa over her husband, who is looking a little bit intimidating to me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you feel this kind of tug when you go off and you realize, ah, it's interesting to hold all beings in equal regard, to value each life. You know, I'm going to expand on that. Um, and then, again, uh, hopefully you'll just tell me if you disagree. Um, it seems to what I like about the Buddhist system for training the mind is it's not saying uh, um, you need to engage in self-flagellation if you notice yourself favoring one person over the other. The, the remedy seems to be mindfulness, just seeing it clearly. There's a value, sort of a healing value in just seeing it. It's like when I was talking about my range of motivation before. Well, I do feel some some sheepishness about uh, sheepishness about the fact that I have selfish motivations. To to me, it's just important to see it. Um, and the same is true, I think, with our biases. And particularly important right now in the American political scene, I'm often telling people that is actually an important mindfulness practice, in my view, to have a varied media diet because um, it is useful to see where your biases are. Yeah. That if you can listen to smart people on both sides of the ideological spectrum – Although I actually think the ideological spectrum has kind of shifted these days because it's not just so much liberal versus conservatives, actually, whether you're pro-Trump or anti-Trump. But whatever, you should listen to smart people on all sides of issues. And because then you'll start to see there's a value. There's even in some ways a kind of pleasure in seeing your biases so that you aren't drowned by them and you can make better – come to wiser conclusions. Anything I just say make any sense to you? Actually, it makes great sense. I mean, for one thing— Are you just saying that because you're on my podcast? No. (laughs) No. You know, as you were talking, I was thinking how important curiosity is. Yes. I mean, you know, if we we don't have this sort of mind of not knowing, you know, we're not open to perspective-taking, being able to kind of slip— you know, in and out of worlds and to see from other points of view. And this really came up for me when I was a young person in uh, as an anthropologist doing cross-cultural anthropology. You know, being able to look out of the eyes of other people or include – actually, it's not so much looking out of other people's eyes. It's uh, – if you could say it this way, it's uh, expanding your subjectivity to include others' perspectives into – how you see the world, then you can have true depth of field. Much more of our conversation right after this quick break. As they say at Amica, empathy is our best policy. Whether you need auto, home, or life insurance, they're ready to help you protect the things that matter most to you. They're a mutual company, customer-owned, in service to you. Amica representatives are here when you need them, and you can take comfort knowing a real person will be there on the phone to take care of you because the greatest measure of their success is your satisfaction. You can count on T-Mobile to help keep you connected after investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns. T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. 
Plus, when you switch to T-Mobile, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus Verizon and AT&T. Visit your neighborhood store or T-Mobile.com to switch. Plan savings with T-Mobile, third line free on essentials via monthly bill credits versus comparable available plans. Plan features may vary. Credits stop if you cancel or change plans. Indeed, used by over 3 million businesses for hiring, where business owners and HR professionals can post job openings with screener questions, then sort, review, and communicate with candidates from an online dashboard. Learn more at Indeed.com slash hire. There's a lot coming at you right now. Turmoil, tweets, an insane amount of chatter. I'm Brad Milkey with ABC News, and I'm here to throw you a lifeline. It's a new podcast called Start Here, where our experts give you on-the-ground access to the biggest stories of the day. We're going to give you some context, some clarity among the chaos. 20 minutes every weekday. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and start here. We've just very conveniently brought us back where I wanted to go, which is you in the 1960s at Columbia and doing this this work, this anthropology work, and also engaged in civil rights work and anti-war work and feeling, as you said before, upregulated. Um, and you, as we know, you, you encountered Buddhism and meditation, but you haven't quite told us exactly when you went from being a book Buddhist to a practicing Buddhist, <laughs> and then what impact it had on you and your mind, given how much as you described it, aversion you were experiencing. So, Dan, I was a book Buddhist for 10 years. And, uh, you know, a book Buddhist reads about Buddhism, goes to Buddhist talks, but doesn't have a teacher. And Or doesn't, do you have a practice? Oh, yeah. Oh, so you did have a practice. So you yeah. weren't just reading books. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things book Buddhists do is they kind of try on practice. Mm. You know, it's kind of like, putting on a new outfit. Yeah, you know, that's an interesting practice. Then you read a book about Tibetan Buddhism and you try on that and you try on a lot of different things, but you're not held accountable. And not being held accountable in a certain way, you can really kind of fool yourself, sort of dream that you're a good spiritual person, which I, I don't think I was caught in that dream so much. But in any case, um, uh, Jack Cornfield um, said to me, he, he and I and my ex-husband, Stanislav Groff, produced uh, a big program at Esalen in uh, 1975 called Buddhism and Mind. And it was about science, philosophy, and Buddhism and psychology. And uh, Jack said to me, you know, um, there's this Korean teacher and he's uh, really interesting and he's really wild and I th- I don't know. I just feel like it's sort of a good fit. And I met this Korean teacher who came sort of up the walk in his little sort of gray outfit, and he had a ton of energy. And I ended up becoming a student. And it was a fantastically interesting shift for me. His name was Sansanim, Sung Sung Sansanim. And um, he had, you know, uh, Korean practice, Korean-style practice is sort of mountain-style practice, and it had a lot of vigor. Mountain-style. Yeah, you know, Korea um, is 75% mountains, and those monks, those uh, Korean monks in the Chokyo order are people who do like 3,000 prostrations a day. They're very uh, vigorous kind of people. 
They're like extreme athletes of Buddhism. I would say. Um, not the only, the Tibetans are pretty good too, but uh, the Koreans are really amazing this way. And this guy had uh, sort of a lot of energy. And I became his student and did a lot of uh, what are called Yongmeng Jin, which is um, uh, these intensive practices. And Yongmeng Jin translates as to leap like a tiger while sitting. <laughs> I love that, that great? Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah. And so it was really, um, you know, I practiced with him for 10 years. It was a very positive experience, mostly. Uh, no relationship with the teacher is completely clear, clean, and radiant. Um, but the deficit for me was uh, no social action. So, you know, I, I was living in a divided world. Um, part of that world was in this intensive Korean Zen practice. And part of the world was, you know, apart from practice, which was related to my activities in the area of social justice. And it ended up in the mid-80s that I um, had the opportunity to meet Thich Nhat Hanh once again. And this was in 85, and I said, you know, I have, to, I have to shift. I need to actually change dreams. Um, I understood the value, and I had really uh, benefited from mind training. But I also um, needed to go back, in a way, to the original impulse, which was how do we bring the experience of mind training in relation to social action, to dealing with issues of structural violence in the world. Uh, how, how do you do that? Well, I'm not sure, actually, <laughs> Dan. <laughs> um, I didn't expect that answer. <laughs> it's a... I could say for all of us, uh, and there are people like Sulak Shivaraksha and Alan Sanoki and Joanna Macy and, you know, a long list uh, of uh, Buddhists who are involved in social action. And I think all of us would come to the same conclusion in terms of how it's always a work in progress. And His Holiness the Dalai Lama is also a social activist. He's also calling for justice. I mean, he called out Aung San Suu Kyi on the Rohingya, for example. Um, and he's a very fiery character, a lot of energy. You know, he's not just uh, breathe and smile. He's got, a t you know, tons of uh, chi, and he's uh, kind of uh, has dragon energy about him. I think that we're, we who are involved in both meditation and social action are constantly exploring that edge, the edge of um, moral outrage. And I write about it in this new book, Standing at the Edge, the edge of moral outrage that is unprincipled and chronic and moral outrage that's principled, where um, our sense of the transgression of what it is to be a good human being on the earth today um, and the uh, uh, assault on our conscience that we feel, that um, it doesn't become a chronic state where we are able to actually use the energy 
uh, related to injustice, to engage in activities that transform our social fabric. Well, I know you say a lot about this in the book, but give us some sense of how, how do you walk that edge between, you know, being appropriately infuriated by the injustices in the world and then and, – and on the other side, just being uh, – drowning in it and then allowing it to have a corrosive effect. You know, I think that is really the work of meditation because you don't want to just stand in the kind of cloud of happiness per se um, that uh, obscures um, the whole landscape of our lives. Um, the landscape of justice and also the landscape of injustice. You want to be able to see the whole landscape. And so walking that edge is really important because it allows you to see the wider landscape, if you will, the wider view of um, our human nature. And how do you do it? Um, You learn balance. Balance at the edge is really critical. And you also, because we're always sliding off, you know, the the high edge of the human heart and encountering our own difficulties and stupidity. Um, One of the things is that you gain out of these uh, unfortunate and difficult slides down the slope um, into empathic distress or pathological altruism or disrespect or moral suffering or burnout. And as you make your way back up to the high edge is um, you gain a little bit of humility. So you're saying that it's hard to f- – maybe even impossible to have the balance that you're describing without having gone through periods of imbalance. I think that um, – you don't have to seek imbalance. Uh, don't worry. <laughs> yes. No, I get it. You'll find yourself yes. in rough times. But you're not calling for perfection, a perfect balance no. at all times here. I guess no. that's what I'm getting at. No. Uh, in fact, I think uh, just the opposite. What perfection does is keep you, you know, away from your full potential. I, I really love the image that Thich Nhat Hanh uses in this regard, Um uh, and I talk about it in uh, the book, Standing at the Edge. Um, he says, no mud, no lotus. That is, um, the root of the lotus goes deep into the mud of suffering, but and also feeds what causes uh, the lotus to bloom. Uh, just give, give me the basic thesis of this new book. So this book is an exploration, Dan, of uh, qualities of the human heart and mind related to our character and what it is to live a life that's characterized by moral character, by virtue, um, by civility. And it explores uh, five domains. Um, One of those domains is altruism. Altruism is essential for uh, our human life. Um, if our parents hadn't been altruistic, we wouldn't be alive today. Mm-hmm. Not you, nor me. You know this as a father. Altruism, altruism is uh, one of those qualities of, the, of human character that uh, make for a healthy society. But when we harm ourselves in the course of uh, serving others, when we harm the body or our mind, 
or when we actually harm, disempower, or overwhelm those who we're endeavoring to serve, or the institutions in which we're serving, or the institutions like governments that we're serving, like Nepal, in a way, has been harmed by pathological altruism, then altruism becomes toxic. And it's what uh, Oakley calls, Barbara Oakley calls, pathological altruism. Empathy. I go deep in the book into uh, the whole world of empathy, what it is to be physically uh, resonant with another, what it is to be emotionally resonant with another, to feel empathy for another, and what it is to um, experience cognitive or mental empathy, where you include the other and how you see the world and how they see the world. But if we get, get too aroused... Too, there's too much fusion with the other person. Then we experience what the social psychologists are now calling empathic distress. And empathic distress can lead to secondary trauma, to us actually being wounded by experiencing the feelings of mm-hmm. another. I also take a deep dive into integrity. And the value of um, what it is to be uh, a person of integrity in our world today. And, you know, we can look at our contemporary politics or what's happening in the media as a kind of violation of integrity. What, What is it to cultivate a civil society and to be a civil and respectful individual? And when that is absent, there, uh, you could say when uh, integrity begins to fragment, then we experience moral suffering. And in the book, I explore four areas of moral suffering. They include moral distress, moral injury, moral outrage, and moral apathy. And I, I go you know, deeply into these areas uh, in, the, in the course of the book. Let me ask you a couple of questions that may not be maybe sort of only obliquely related to the, to the book, but they're just, you know, um, they really popped out to me. And I, I wonder if listeners will have attuned to them as well. One of them I already asked you about, but I want to go back to it, which is I think a lot of people listening to this will have – Conventional lives, by which I mean, in this case, in this context, not social activists. You know, we we have – I work for a major corporation. I'm sure lots of people who listen to this have – maybe they're accountants. Maybe they uh, – um, I don't know, whatever they do. Uh, but it's not – you know, they're not full-time engaged in trying to heal the wounds of the world. I find, again, as I said to you before, that that can be a little sitting or with you or hearing from somebody like you can be a, a little bit of a guilt-inducing. What, what would you say to those who might have those feelings upon listening to you as somebody who's built her life around um, addressing these issues in the world and also addressing your own internal issues so that you can better address the issues in the world? I'd say good luck. <laughs> Um, good luck, because I think that, in a way, um, all of us contri- contribute. And um, all of us, I believe, are called on to contribute, not necessarily, you know, being Nelson Mandela, 
uh, not necessarily being Malala, uh, not necessarily even following uh, a little bit, say, the tiny little bit that I've done, but um, addressing our own consumerism, um, looking at what we can do uh, in terms of the environment. Um, do we really need uh, all of the things that are in our storage locker? Um, can we bring up our kids in a way where there's great appreciation for inclusivity, diversity? Um, we are all in an interconnected world, whether you're a banker or accountant or a forest ranger or whether you're an academician or you're plastering walls, we are sharing um, all in a moment of time of hyper-interconnectedness where cause and effect is really operating and we're all responsible and we all can take responsibility to, in ways that are appropriate for us and we have to find each of us our scale of effectiveness. Right. So we don't need to be Mahatma Gandhi. We can just do our best in our own jurisdiction. Exactly. So the other thing you said, you talk, when you talked about book Buddhists, a little flag went up for me because I suspect a lot of listeners to this podcast would be what you would describe as book Buddhists, people who read a lot of books, they practice a little bit, maybe they use an app, whatever, but they don't have a teacher per se. They're not going for it in that way. Is, does that mean they're not doing it right? I needed a teacher, Dan. Many people don't need teachers. You know, I'm such a wild person that I actually needed somebody that who would talk straight to me. And as a result of that, um, you know, I'm still uh, a wild person. But I'm <laughs> but wild. you're the teacher. Right. But also, you know, I, my teacher is still alive. And, uh, my, you know, I, so I practiced Thai for a decade, Thich Nhat Hanh. And then I decided, look, I want a Western teacher. And I became Roshi Bernie Glassman's student. And so, you know, I talk to my teacher all the time and I say, hey, Bernie, tell me, how can I do this better? And he's very wonderful. He'll say, well, I don't know. And then we enter into inquiry. But not everybody needs a teacher because, you know, Dan, everything is teaching us. Everything is. And part of it is, is how do we ignite this sense of inquiry within our human heart so everything can teach us. What, how, what is your, I'm just curious, what's your daily practice like? What, what does meditation for you mean? I like what Clark Strand said in something he wrote. He said, you know, it's, uh, the best thing to do is to meditate inside the life you have. So if you're a policeman, you meditate inside of that life. If you're an accountant, you meditate inside that life. For me, if I'm on an airplane, that's the life I have in that moment, and I meditate inside of that life. I think that um, having a daily practice for some people, like myself, is really good. So first thing I do when I wake up in the morning is I actually check my state of mind. And I begin to shift into first 
resettling the body, and then to remember um, why I'm really here, which is to end suffering. And uh, since I work with a lot of beings, a lot of people who suffer, um, I have the chance to bring one person or another into my heart in that moment to just kind of let me be, if you will, infused with a sense of compassion. And this gives um, direction and meaning in my life. And then in that uh, state, then, you know, I'll spend anywhere from five minutes to sometimes an hour in the morning just allowing uh, my body and mind to settle down and to become much more integrated before I head out into the world. Will you get out of bed before you do this or you sometimes just stay right there in bed? And, and... You know, Dan, um, a lot of times I'll just sit up in bed. Um, sometimes I'll stay supine. And if I haven't had a lot of sleep um, that night because I'm jet lagged from traveling from time, to, time zone to time zone, you know, I might stay supine and just allow myself to be infused with that quality of presence, compassion, and wakefulness. And you know, it's, it's like a vitamin that you take. Mm. And, mm. What, what, I, I think that uh, long-term retreat or intensives, uh, a weekend of really, you know, strong practice is good. But also this kind of daily dose um, is important. And I do the same thing at night, Dan. But also, you know, going back to uh, Clark Strand's uh, wonderful view of meditating inside the life you have, I'm walking down uh, the concourse to catch a plane. And instead of hurrying mindlessly, often I'll do it as walking meditation. Then I'll say, oh, it says gate 43. But actually the Sanskrit word gate, which is uh, means gone, gone, or arrive, arrive, uh, I'll go gate, gate, as I pass by each gate. <laughs> You know, as a way to kind of amuse myself, and but to drop in and to um, help to regulate my nervous system. Um, that's really good. I mean, the, the, especially for me, the part about waking up in the morning, because I realize even after all of my public lecturing about the value of meditation, I tend to wake up, grab my phone, which is the opposite of mindfulness you know just to spend some time supine or sitting checking in makes a ton of sense i'm going to start doing that um finally sorry did you have something well i was going to say dan um i think that sometimes we have the idea as people who do meditation practice that you have to do these long periods, you know, like an hour or even 20 minutes for some people is just not viable. One breath can help you shift states. Absolutely. It can wake you up to whatever had been owning you the moment before mindlessly. So one final question as we wrap up here about the book. Why Why now? Why this book now? I think we have a, a serious deficit of virtue right now. And um, it's not as though uh, there has been a more virtuous time uh, in the 
history of uh, human uh, endeavor. But it's more that uh, non-virtue or incivility or unkindness, um, violence, is more visible to us. And that we have to actually put our hand on the tiller and shift the direction of our boat now. Um, the tipping point, in a certain way, is in this moment. Uh, it's in this moment intimately, but it's also in this moment globally. And we have an opportunity as a global society, not just as a as Western society, but really as a global society, to shift um, toward a future which can be possible if we develop a good heart and a clear mind. And bringing together wisdom and compassion as an imperative at this time, I think, is essential. But do you think enough people are going to do this that it can make a difference? I do. Um, my friend Rebecca Solnit, who wrote the introduction to the book, has written a – of my book, has written a many powerful books. Um, she wrote one called Hope in the Dark. And I feel that kind of hope. I feel that um, as complicated and difficult and vulnerable and threatened as our world is today, and I'm talking about the whole world – um, also, uh, the possibility not of just escaping off the planet to parallel universes, but of transforming um, our world into a viable, generative society that includes all beings and things. I feel that possibility is with us now. Um, this has been great. Well, if people want to learn more about you, how can they do that? So I'm the abbot of Upaya Zen Center. Uh, it's very easy to find, www.upaya.org. Also, um, uh, get my book, Standing at the Edge. It's filled with uh, stories about many lives, including mine. And it also is filled, I believe, with a view that um, uh, has great possibility for bringing peace into this world. Excellent. Thank you very much. Thank you, Dan. My pleasure. My pleasure. Okay, that does it for another edition of the 10% Happier Podcast. If you liked it, please take a minute to subscribe, rate us. Also, if you want to suggest topics you think we should cover or guests that we should bring in, hit me up on Twitter, at Dan B. Harris. Importantly, I want to thank uh, the people who produce this podcast, Lauren Efron, Josh Cohan, and the rest of the folks here at ABC who helped make this thing possible. We have tons of other podcasts. You can check them out at abcnewspodcasts.com. I'll talk to you next Wednesday. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey. Once upon a beat, remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuel, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the New Kids and Family Podcast 
once upon a beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books.